Hello and welcome back to Marcus Kauke's podcast today because today I have with me one of my mentors and someone who I really genuinely look up to because he's made a positive impact on my life in ways that very few people have. And some of you have heard of him before. He's my favorite author, Dr. Mark Goulston. Mark, thank you so much for coming today. You know, you're one of my favorite mentees. And if you're listening in, you need to do what I need to do with Marcus, which is take the time and make the time to stay in contact with your favorite people instead of pulling your hair out dealing with your least favorite people. <laughs> okay, clearly, that's, that may have been me. But to be perfectly honest, I'm genuinely happy. I mean, my, my, my life at the moment, as near perfect as it possibly could be. But today, what I really want to talk about is the stress and the pressure that a lot of people, particularly young people, must be facing through the isolation and through their world being turned into turmoil because of COVID. So to set the scene, I'm, my wife and I are concerned for our children because my eldest daughter is just leaving secondary school or high school and her A-levels have been cancelled. So she doesn't know whether she's going to go to university. She's not going to have a chance to prove herself in her exams, which she normally does very well in, because she really knuckles down. She's worked, spent two years working really hard. I have another daughter who is very concerned about the possibility of a second spike, and so she's almost withdrawing herself from day-to-day -day life. And there'll be university kids who are leaving university and going into the worst recession in history. I, I remember when I left the university, I went into a recession, but it was nowhere near as bad as this one. And I, I'd love to talk to you about why we shouldn't be scared as parents and why they shouldn't be scared and how they can handle the pressure of their hopes and dreams being maybe pulled from under them temporarily. So, Mark, your thoughts? Well, I think what you just said is... You graduated into a recession, and not only did you make it through, you've thrived. You reached the point where you say, you know, personally, it's much better than you've been. So, so from a point in which you never thought that your future would be as positive as it is, it is. And so I think it's important to realize that we always get through these things, even when we think we won't. And that really what's happened is the future that your daughters were living into has been either ripped away or dramatically modified. And often the future that we're living into is like our true north. So imagine having a compass and you take true north off it. It spins around. And that orients us. And so you rip away true north, that goal. And it threatens to have our mind start to fall apart. And so that's what's happening is her mind or their minds have not pivoted to what the next true north is going to be. And it will be there. I mean, there are some people that are seeing such opportunities in this major disruption. Sadly, they're in their small minority, but they're already pivoting. Whereas other people, it's the sky is falling, the sky is falling, and the sky is falling. And so if you can, what I would say to them is what's happening is what you were counting on 
what was orienting you has been taken away. So you feel disoriented. And when you feel disoriented, you you pull it, you pull in, you, you try to shut down all the stimulus because you feel disoriented. But if what you can keep saying to them is what's happened is your mind has not yet reoriented itself to what will be revealed to it. And if you can manage your anxiety, meaning keeping it from overwhelming you, one of the reasons your daughter is probably pulling in is because inside there's a part of her that's thinking, if I push out of my little reclusive cage, not only will I be anxious, I'm going to panic. And if this crosses over into a panic attack, I'm gone. Nobody can stand panic. It's interesting we're having this conversation because I recently spoke with a, I actually spoke with a teenager who has done very much the same as your daughter. And if you're listening in, something you haven't brought up, or brought up, and I'm not sure if it's yet affecting your daughters, but I was speaking to this other a teenage young girl about having obsessive compulsive disorder you know, with the hair and checking things and whatever. And what's happened is she's become so addicted to those compulsive behaviors that they now occupy her life, whether it's the washing the hands, which can, which, which can lead to compulsive, whatever, compulsive cleaning or picking at your hair or whatever. And so we had an interesting conversation in which I'm going to share with you because maybe it'll be of some use to your children about how to manage Please. what's going on. So as I mentioned to you, you know, I'm writing a book on how to get through COVID-19 PTSD. And without giving the whole book away, a big part of the book is going to, and it's going to be geared towards first responders, healthcare workers, people who couldn't see their parents die, which happened a lot in New York City. And one of the key parts of the book, which I hope will interest some of your listeners, and when's it coming out, and we're doing a, a fast writing of it, is something that we're calling the four horsemen of COVID-19 PTSD. And what the four horsemen means, so imagine you're a healthcare worker, or imagine you're a first responder. So the four horsemen, and then we'll adapt this back to your kids, are horror, terror, fragile, don't panic. So imagine you're a nurse, you're a doctor, you see something horrific beyond anything you've ever seen before. People are just dying around you. You don't have PPE. You're thinking you can catch it. So you're horrified by it. When you go home, you start quivering. You go into the closet and cry because you're terrified. You feel fragile. You feel, I can't go back another day. But other people are feeling the same way, and you're not going to let down your coworkers or your patients. You're just not going to. So you say to yourself, don't panic. And what happens is you suppress your feelings that are disrupting you. And suppressing them is just pushing them down, pushing them down, pushing them down. And then what happens is you repress your feelings, which means you push them into your unconscious. Because if you're spending all your time pushing your feelings down, you can't function. And our mind allows for that. You know, just like our computer has working memory and then we have a hard disk that everything goes into. And so what I told this young woman 
young girl, what you could sell your kids is you can say, you know, are you focused on any compulsive behaviors? And most of them have compulsive behaviors. And, and this is what I explained to this young girl. I said, when the trauma hit, now for your kids, the trauma is their, their university, their testing, what are they going to do next year? So maybe it's not as horrific as going into a hospital and watching people die, but to a young kid who's counting on that and it orients their life, it's pretty horrific. And then what happens, it's terrifying. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? So what happens is when we have feelings that we can't tolerate because we think we're going to explode, we start to have obsessive thoughts. Now, the obsessive thoughts are better than the uncontrollable feelings, but they're not pleasant. You know, thinking obsessively is a way of coping with these feelings that at any given moment you think will overwhelm you. So that begins the obsessive thinking. And then what happens is the obsessive thinking is exhausting. So it crosses over into a compulsive behavior, which gives you relief. Gee, I find that if I pull up my hair, I find that if I wash my hands a thousand times, each time I'm washing them, you know, I feel better. I feel relief. And I say, this is crazy. I'm not going to do it again. And then an hour later or 10 minutes later, I'm washing again. Because what we're going for is the relief. So the compulsive behavior, and all compulsive behaviors, by the way, give us relief. Drinking, eating, things that aren't good for us. And then after we do it, we feel guilt, shame, embarrassment. We say, I'm not going to overeat. I'm not going to drink again. And then what happens is all those things build up. The feeling, go into the obsessive thoughts, go into the compulsive behavior. So what I suggested to this young girl is there is a window after you do the compulsive behavior, and it might be only minutes, but there's a window where you're feeling relief. That's what compulsive behavior does. And, and I told her, keep a journal, because if during that moment when you have relief, you can write down what was the obsessive thought that I was thinking right before I did the compulsive behavior. And you write down the obsessive thought. But what you really want to get to is what was the feeling inside that I was so afraid of that caused me to have the obsessive thought? And for many people, what that feeling is, is some of the following. I think I'm going crazy and I'm not going to come back. I think my future is gone and I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. I think I'm stuck and I can't get unstuck. I think I'm a weak person because all the other people that are moving on and they're not stuck in their room, they're all moving ahead and I'm not. Whatever the feeling is. But the point is, you use the journal to keep a note during the moment of relief after the compulsive behavior. And then what happens is you start having conversations. And by the way, if your daughters have conversations with you, what people really need when they're conversing about the feelings is not for us to jump in with solutions. Hmm. It's like draining an abscess. You can't go in there and suture an abscess before it's drained. It may look pretty, but an abscess will go septic. You have to drain the abscess. And so if you can encourage, 
your daughters, or if you're listening in, you know, someone that you're worried about, to have a conversation with you. Here's what you say to them and what you ask them. First of all, you say, I'm so glad you're telling me. Because a lot of times they feel I'm burdening my parents. They're already burdened. I'm going to scare them. And so I think if you were to say, I'm so glad you're telling me this, that reassures them that they're not burdening you. And then the second thing you say is, um, how often do you feel this way? And they tell you. Because what you're trying to do is help them feel less alone in a place that's incredibly scary. And they'll tell you how often. And then you say, at its worst, how awful are you capable of feeling? They might say, well, what do you mean? How awful as I can't stand this another second? And they might say, and by this time, by the way, they're going to be crying with relief. You didn't make them cry. You're draining the abscess underneath it all. And they're going to think really awful. And then what you say to them is, take me to the last time you felt that way. And they're going to say, what? And the reason you're doing that is they felt alone at that moment when they thought they couldn't take it another second. And that's when they started to go from horror to terror to fragile, horror to terror to fragile, and they couldn't take it anymore. And so when they take you back to that moment, they're not alone in horror, terror, fragile. And so have them pick it. Have them pick a time. Oh, gee, dad, I don't want to wake you and mom, but it happens every night at 2.30. I'm not sleeping through the night. I wake up at 2.30 and I look and I can't get back to sleep. And I'm walking around my room and I'm whatever I'm doing. And so the more you allow them to tell you about the incident, and here's what you want to do. You want to get them to tell you it so clearly that you can see it through their eyes. Why? Because when you see it through their eyes, they re-experience it. There's something about it being really specific. So if you were to say, take me back to the worst one, and they say, 2.30, what night? Every night. Take me back to 2.30 last night. Well, I thought I was going to be able to sleep through the night, and then suddenly I'm up, and I look at the clock, and it's 2.30. Okay, and then what, what happened after you looked at the clock? Well, I, you know, I got really angry. Uh, I just, you know, I, I closed my eyes. I tried to force myself to go to sleep. And then I woke up even more. And then what happened? Well, I didn't want to wake you and mom. So I just stayed there. Uh, then what happened? Something I tried but gave up about two weeks ago is I tried reading. I said, well, if I'm up, I may as well do something. I can't, you know, I'm, my mind's not able to concentrate. So then what happened? I started getting scared. What did you get scared about? I started feeling panicky. And the reason you didn't come to wake mom and me? Well, because there's really nothing you can do. I mean, you, you would say to me, it's going to be okay, or you're feeling panicky, and that's all right. You know, try to get back to sleep. But do you follow what, I'm, what we're doing, Marcus? Absolutely. We're going into the abscess. And my book, Just Listen, which you're a big fan of, is how do you help people feel felt? Because when someone feels felt, it's different than feeling understood. Feeling understood is better than feeling misunderstood. But feeling understood is still intellectual. Yep. You're still alone in the feeling. But when you feel felt and you feel less alone in the feeling, you're able to safely experience the horror, terror, fragile 
without panicking because you're, you're there speaking it out. I mean, this is a really fabulous process because my read on this is that, first of all, you give them permission to open up. And by opening up that they don't feel alone and it's a bit of an empathy jolt along the way. But more importantly, by being able to voice it, um, then it doesn't feel like they're the only one. And that someone else not only understands them, but feels what they feel. And by going through the, uh, the graphic description of their feelings, that then releases presumably a bunch of endorphins in their brain. And that acts as a reward function. Would that be what's happening? Everything except the endorphins. So, so what's happening neuroscientifically? Because people listening in, there are some people will say, well, that sounds nice, but, and they need me to make a more compelling case. So this is what's happening neurobiologically. And you were very close with the endorphins. What's happening is when we are stressed, there's a signal that goes out to our adrenal glands, which release cortisol. Cortisol then sends a signal to our whole body, get ready for the stress, pushes out all kinds of uh, glucose to get us ready for the stress, but it also overly activates something called our amygdala. Yeah. Our amygdala is in our brain, and the amygdala is kind of like the, I don't know what you would call it in uh, soccer, but it's like the point guard in, uh, in basketball. And so the amygdala, when it gets that signal from the high cortisol, the amygdala is in the middle of our brain, our emotional brain, and it sends a signal, let's send the blood flow to our lower brain because we got to survive. So the blood flow goes preferentially to our survival lower brain, brainstem, a reptile brain, whatever you want to call it, because we got to survive. And when you think of the expression deer in the headlights, deer in the headlights, what you're looking at is you're looking at into the eyes of some animal or human being that's not thinking anymore. They're just not thinking anymore. And they're frozen. They haven't yet run or panicked, but they're, they're frozen. So the amygdala does something called an amygdala hijack, which means you can't think. Now, here's the interesting thing is... It's not endorphins, but there's another hormone called oxytocin. Oxytocin is the bonding hormone. It's what enables young mothers to still be loving and pleasant to their infant who has been crying nonstop all the way through the night. The oxytocin counteracts the high cortisol with bonding. And so what happens when you do that, Oxy, a surge of oxytocin, and when someone feels felt, oxytocin goes up. They're feeling connection. They're feeling less alone. And so when oxytocin goes up, cortisol goes down, the amygdala settles down, and blood flow returns to the upper brain so they can actually start thinking and have a constructive conversation with you. And by the way, this is a slight tangent, but for any of you who are in marriages or you want to find out why your ex-marriage didn't work, frequently a spouse will be upset. They have high cortisol. And if you're the problem-solving spouse, you'll try to help them by giving them advice and solution that they don't want. 
And the reason you're do that, doing that is because when that spouse is feeling emotional, they make you nervous. You feel out of control. Your cortisol goes up. So you try to clamp it down by giving them advice and solutions, which they don't want. And the reason being is what they're wanting is they want a surge of oxytocin because their cortisol is high. And when you give them advice or a solution that they don't want, it makes the cortisol go higher and there's even less oxytocin. And so if you can just imagine this in your mind, instead of saying to them, stop being emotional, get a hold of yourself, which just clamps it down, but then it's like this and it builds up and you do that over enough years, they'll clamp down and then one day they're going to say, you know, let's get a divorce. So what they really want is they want to feel felt. And you can use the same questions with them. In fact, in my recent book, Talking to Crazy, there's a technique that is magical. And you can use this actually with your teenagers too. It's called the, uh, the FUD technique. I think we actually refer to it as the FUD crud, just so people can remember it, FUD crud. But what FUD stands for is frustration, upset, disappointed. So when someone is venting at you, or if someone's being sullen, you know, let's, let's say it's your spouse who doesn't vent, but they just go, I'm fine. I'm fine. Leave me alone. Uh, <laughs> So whether it's a sullen, shutdown teenager or spouse or someone who's venting or complaining or whining, you calm your amygdala because your cortisol is going up and you let them finish. Or if they're sullen, you calm yourself down and you say to them, you know, I think you're feeling frustrated and I think you're holding back. They're going to go, what? And see, people will talk about frustration. If you say to someone, I think you're angry. No, I'm not. People feel shame. I'm not angry. But if you say, people talk about frustration. You know, it seems to be an okay word. You can say, you seem frustrated and I think you're holding back. And they're going to be disarmed. What do you mean? You say, I think you're not just frustrated. I think you're upset and you're disappointed. And you might be disappointed in me. Probably you're disappointed in us, disappointed in the situation, disappointed in yourself. So can you fill me in exactly what you're frustrated, upset, and disappointed about? And so what's happening is you're taking charge of facilitating a conversation where they drain the abscess by getting stuff all the way out. And you don't get defensive because you, I've given you tactics. And I'm telling you, if you can go through their frustration, their upset, and their disappointment, and you watch their eyes, you're going to start to see their eyes maybe tear up with relief. You're going to see their eyes soften. And you're going to actually feel, you're going to feel better because you're going to feel, wow, I'm not getting defensive. You're actually going to be able to be empathic to what they're feeling. And what you want to do is, is drain each of those. So when they say, tell me what you're frustrated about, and they'll tell you. you. Say, is there anything else you're frustrated about? So you go through that layer. You could say, now, what are you upset about? And so you want to drain each one. And when you get through the frustration, the upset, they could say, now, what are you disappointed in? But you have to say it like you want to hear it. If you do this like you're checking boxes, well, I heard this on Marcus's thing. So what are you frustrated about? Okay. Uh, we got that done. Uh, what are you upset about? Okay. Uh, okay. What are you disappointed about? 
And then you write Marcus back and say, I tried that FUD crud thing. And I want to tell you, FUD you. I mean, it didn't work. No, no, no. You didn't care about the conversation. You didn't care about their feeling. Again, I think this points to another area which is really critical, which is about having a, an authenticity about genuinely caring and being fully present. Because I think where you're just trying to use it as a shopping list, it lacks authenticity and you're probably trying to move on and you're, you're already outside of that conversation. And one of the things that's really been very powerful, certainly through our interaction and through understanding the winner's triangle is that whole piece about being fully present and being fully in the moment. No other distractions, and you pay great attention. You pay full attention. One of the things that's been really interesting for me over the last 17 years as I've evolved out of my more selfish uh, self is that I found that my curiosity has increased I genuinely want to understand how people feel and what's going through their mind, what's going through their gut. And when I'm speaking to my clients, uh, you know, a lot of them are going through some pretty tough times at the moment and they're having to make some pretty tough decisions. Simply being there, not distracted, not thinking about my emails, not thinking about what I have to do next is really key. So, in terms of how you would advise people to be fully present, not just pay lip service to it, but to get themselves into the right frame of mind so that they can be fully present, what advice would you give? Well, I'm glad you asked that because uh, I had the pleasure and privilege of speaking in Moscow along with a Nobel Prize winner, Daniel Kahneman. He wrote a famous book called Thinking Fast and Slow, and he won the Nobel Prize. And I spoke, and there was another speaker named Joseph Pine. He wrote The Experience Economy. And it was the three of us, and so it was really a privilege to be one of the highlighters. And my whole talk, so picture this, a thousand Russian managers and CEOs. And the whole focus of my talk, I didn't use this word so much, but here is how to be totally present. This will be the most important takeaway from our conversation, although I think we've had a few good things that we've had to say or you've allowed me to say. What you have to realize is that whoever you're with is listening for something. And if you can just be curious with what we call a beginner's mind, meaning you have nothing to sell, you have no agenda, if you can just be curious about what they're listening for, you are 100% present, and they lean in. So what I said to these managers and CEOs, I spoke in English, and it was in real time translated into Russian. I said, let me see if I get what you're, what you're listening for. If you're managers and CEOs, you're judged by measurable results. Not just performance, measurable results. And if you get good measurable results, you get a promotion. If you get bad, measurable results, you get the opposite. Is that true? Duh. (laughs) Second, what you're listening for is a way to get those results that's less stressful. Because the way you're getting the results now 
is causing you to drink too much, eat too much, causing your people to feel stress. And so if you could get better results that are less stressful, you're listening for that too. Is that true? Duh. And then I said, and here's the most important thing you're listening for. You don't have the room in your head to learn much new stuff. So you're listening for something that you can use immediately, like right now, where you don't have to buy a book. And by the way, there's no book written on this yet. I haven't written it. I'm here because you probably read my other books because my books are bestsellers in Russia. And But you're listening for something that you don't have to take a course. You don't have to read a book. You don't even have to like psychology. You don't even have to like insight. You're looking for something that you can use immediately now, doable by you, that will get you better results, that's less stressful. And if we accomplish that, you will say, today was worth the money I paid and the time I reserved for today. Is that true? And they go, oh, duh, duh, how'd you get that? <laughs> and, and so the point is, like, for instance, if you're listening in, I'm going to demonstrate this with Marcus. Because, see, normal conversations are the other person is emotionally a little bit distant and they listen to you. Mark, give us some such and such. And if I focus on what you're listening to, I rattle off some bullet points and people say, oh, that's pretty good. They write them down. They write them down. They say, oh, that's good. Maybe I'll try one. Maybe I'll buy a book. Maybe I'll buy a course. And that's a transactional conversation if I focus on what you're listening to. And that's the way the world works, which may explain why much of the world is falling through the cracks. But if I focus on what you're listening for, so here's what I think you are listening for, Marcus. And tell me what your inner experience is if I get it right. So my inner Marcus, let me see what this is. <laughs> I, think, I think what you're listening for is, first thing, you know, Mark, um, you know, I know I can come off as the salesy guy, but I really love my kids and they're scared now. They're scared and they're hurting. And I want to lessen the scare, how scared they are and how hurt they are. And I want to be able to give them relief. And I'm their dad. I want to be able to protect them. And I'm really having a challenge. And what I'm listening for is something where I can go back and help them feel better. Help them calm down. Help them think it's going to turn out. And I'm listening for something that you can share with me that I can share with them where they can look at me and say, thank you, Dad. I'm feeling a little better. And I'm also listening for something that I'd be able to do because, you know, I'm a fan of your book or your books, Mark, but I'm not you. I'm getting better, but I'm not exactly an empath. <laughs> I'd like to be more of an empath because I think if I could be more of an empath, I think my life everywhere will improve. And I'm committed to that, by the way. But I'm listening for something that Marcus can do, as opposed to having to be something which I'm not quite there. Mark, you're an empath. I'm not quite there. So I'm listening for something that you can tell me that I, Marcus, the empath in training, can use to help my kids feel a little bit better, a little more optimistic. And what I'm also listening for is I don't think I'm alone 
being a parent who wants to help their kids feel better. In fact, I think if you are a parent and you read the owner's manual for being a parent, it's, 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 it's one of your top priorities. When your kids are feeling awful and they're scared, you got to do whatever you can to help them feel better. So I'm sort of listening for that, Mark. Is any of that true? Yeah, absolutely. It was interesting. As you started out, I was feeling a bit of a churning in the pit of my stomach. And then that started to rise up, but it was more of a sense of relief. And, you know, well, I don't think my girls are quite as obsessive or worried. Uh, what I am genuinely concerned about is that they do need to feel felt and feel understood and that they do need to have a better perception of what's possible because this too will pass. There's no question in my mind. And as you went through that process, I started to feel lighter inside. I felt a sense of relief and I felt, I felt felt. So no, it was a fabulous experience. It was very, it was very gentle. That was the other thing. It's not a sort of bolt out of the blue and it, it doesn't feel like I'm being told. It feels like I'm being, I'm being read, I'm being understood. And that's a great feeling as a, as, you know, a, a species that's basically herd animals. We want to be understood. We want to be felt. We want to be heard. So what happened? I think I know you, Marcus. What happened is when I started this, you got a little uptight because, uh-oh, Mark's going to try an exercise with me where he's going to try to induce the oxytocin in me. And my oxytocin still isn't my strong suit because I like to take control and I like to make things happen. Uh-oh, I'm having performance anxiety because Mark is going to try something with me. And I really like Mark and I don't want to disappoint him, but I don't know if he's going to be able to find the oxytocin in me because I have trouble finding the oxytocin in me. And then as he kept talking, there was this odd feeling. And I was feeling relief. And I think what happened is because I felt red and felt felt, the oxytocin started to come. And the oxytocin counteracted the cortisol feeling I was having like, oh, okay, Mark, it's been a good interview. I hope you don't blow it with doing this thing with me. You know, I'll try to be cooperative, but you know, I'm a, I'm a limited kind of guy. <laughs> but then it worked. And, and I was just feeling the relief because what happened is you felt felt. Your oxytocin went up, the cortisol went down, and you felt lighter. I think you give me way too much credit. But the reality is that I'm kind of cool with the whole situation, but I, I, I genuinely worry for my children because the, the pressure they must be feeling at the moment and I look around and I, I see this turmoil in the world. We've got the Black Lives Matter, we've got riots, we've got the political upheaval. In the UK, we have the joint worst track record in terms of handling the COVID crisis. And it's tough knowing that your kids are going to have to go out there into this world. My eldest daughter seems to be handling it really well in spite of her hopes being potentially pulled from under her. She's got a part-time job working at a supermarket and 
She's busying herself with becoming Mother Hen. She's looking after us all. And, uh, you know, as a family, we're doing okay. But I, I recognize the fact that this is going on. And there, there are so many people worse off than us as well. As a family, we haven't had any rows in 10 weeks, which is a miracle, because uh, we rowed a lot more when uh, <laughs> pre-crisis. And it's such an odd experience going through this. And I think what, one of the things that I'd really like to explore a little bit further, because this, you know, this has been a fabulous experience, is as a species, we don't really like change. I think Woodrow Wilson had the best observation. If you want to make enemies, recommend change. And where everyone has had change foisted on them, foisted on them in the workplace, in their domestic arrangements, in their social life, and where that change has been forced on you, that does create stress. Even though I've personally, I feel I've handled it remarkably well because I've loved every minute of this uh, uh, this crisis. I just packed up two bags from the office and just moved into my conservatory. I've had an absolute blast since. But I just recognize how many people I'm speaking to. And they've been not for six. They're, they're disorientated. They're worried about the people that they work with, the work for, the people they employ. And those stress levels, I'm really curious how that's going to affect society at a broader level. What are your instinctive predictions uh, about how society will change, at least in the short to medium term, when we come out of this lockdown? Well, I'll get into that, but I want. But there, you said a lot, and I want to. I want to reflect on some of them. You brought up something very important about your eldest daughter. One of the best things to do when you're feeling stuck, when you're feeling cornered, when you're feeling like a deer in the headlights, or a pigeon in the storm, is to be an activity. And if the activity is serving others, whatever it is, that will help it even more. Why? Because when you're out there serving others, you're creating oxytocin. They're feeling cared about. When they feel cared about, they feel grateful to you. So you're creating oxytocin. They feel cared about. They feel grateful to you. Gratitude is dopamine. That's pleasure. And when they show that gratitude towards you, you not only feel the oxytocin, you begin to feel a little bit of dopamine. When they smile at you and they say, thank you. Or when they say, you don't know how much it matters to me that you're doing what you're doing. And so being of service to others, even when you want to just pull away, will help you feel better. And there's some neuroscience going on. It'll create oxytocin and then dopamine. In terms of talking about change, I did a webinar with the Medina Institute of Leadership and Entrepreneurship, and it was called Overcoming Resistance to Change in Yourselves, in Others and Yourself. Overcoming Resistance to Change in Others and Yourself. And my whole hypothesis was resistance to change doesn't exist. And they looked at me, you know, they were all, you know, wearing their robes and stuff. And, you know, it was, it was done virtually. And I said, what exists is non-rational, non-functional self-preservation. 
non-rational, non-functional self-preservation. What does that mean? They're not being resistant to change. They're being self-protective because the more specialized the world, the more we live in a psychological silo. It's like the blinders that the horses used to have. And what's in the silo? Here is where I'm competent. Here is where I'm confident. Here is where I feel in control. Competent, confident, in control. And so whenever you try to pull someone out of that specialized area of competence, they lose confidence. And when they lose confidence, they feel out of control. So that is why people are always trying to pull you into their silo, because when you try to get them outside of it, they feel incompetent. Kind of to go back to something we were saying 15 minutes ago, you know, when someone wants you to help them feel felt so they can get an oxytocin surge, but you want to give them solutions, what's happening is until they feel felt, their oxytocin doesn't go up. If you give them advice and solutions so you can lower your cortisol because you're a good advice giver, you're doing that to lower your cortisol, but you're raising theirs even more. And and what's happening is it's not that they're resistant to your advice or solution. It's that I need to feel felt. If I feel felt, I can calm down. If I calm down, I can actually have a rational conversation with you. And so... Uh, so if you're listening to this and you're following this, that's why I go back to what I just said about 10 minutes ago about being present. If you can just be curious about what's the other person listening for, which I demonstrated with Marcus, and it actually worked. He actually felt. felt. Yep. So if you can remind yourself, whoever I'm with, what are they listening for from me? And another podcast, we're going to talk about how you can use this in sales. I'll give you a teaser for that because Marcus is going to want to say, oh, we'll do that one soon, Mark. <laughs> and I talked about this in Russia. When you're selling to other people, what they're listening for is that, they, that if they say yes, they won't regret saying yes. And what you have to do is cause them to regret saying no more than they regret saying yes. And why would they regret saying no? It's just a teaser of a whole other podcast we're going to do. <laughs> well, they, they'd regret saying no if, if they say no to you and they still have to solve the problem you're talking about. That means they have to go to someone else and go through the whole thing all over again. The problem hasn't gone away. Yep. Also, they'll, they'll regret saying no uh, if they say no to you and their boss says, you know that, that company you said no to? Sandler? Our competitor hired them, and our competitor is killing us. Why did you say no to them? Oh, oh well. So, but that's a whole other podcast, is tuning in. What are they listening for? What are they listening for? But that's a teaser. That's a teaser. We'll get into that one another time. I'm looking forward to that one. So back to the society question then, because I remember reading a meta-study of mankind's greatest fear. And out of 330 studies that they condensed the uh, responses to, they came to the conclusion that mankind's greatest fear was the future, because with it comes uncertainty. And uh, I'd like to explore how uh, individuals within a collective 
handle that the high degree of uncertainty that we're facing at the moment. We've got financial uncertainty, there's political uncertainty, there's social uncertainty, and then there's the personal uncertainty. And all of that's coming like a tsunami all at once. So what are your thoughts in terms of how society will adapt? So I'm going to say something <laughs> that is going to uh, offend people, but I don't care. That's all right. I don't care either. The hope of the world lies in jettisoning, getting rid of all the male leaders. We need the Angela Merkels, the Jacinda Ardern's, maybe the Margaret Thatcher's. Because one of the main differences between female leaders, just females in general, is females don't have the need to win the way men do. Men are competitive. They need to win. They need to be right. And I'm not saying women don't need to be right, but the women I know, they just get stuff done. <laughs> it's all about, I got to get stuff done. You know, and part of that is because many women are mothers. And one of the reasons they've given up on winning a long time ago is any woman who's a mother has had a child who did a temper tantrum in the local store and all the other mothers were looking at her. Can't you have any control over that kid? And so they gave up on winning as soon as they have kids. My, but, my wife has that problem with me. <laughs> uh, but, but, they, but, no, but, I'm but I'm saying that men have a need to win and they turn things into competition. And what's happened is the need to win can be corrupted by your using things to win at all costs. And so there's going to be a wider gap, if you leave it to men, between the haves and the have-nots. Even in America, with getting this PPP, the people who really needed it really didn't even know how to apply for it and go through all the things. But geez, some of the big companies that didn't need it, they just got the money. They already had their lawyers in place. So we apply this way, we apply this way, we can get millions of dollars. And then some of them got caught. They said, oh, okay, sorry, we'll give it back. And so I think, I think women, I heard a saying, there's a saying, I guess, in the Bible, the meek will inherit the earth. I heard a recent saying that said, the women will inherit the earth. Let's just hope there's enough left of it before the men do what they're doing to it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a fair point. Okay, so living in a household of women, um, so even the cat's female, I've learned that more often than not, my competitive spirit and my need to be right get me into trouble and create needless conflict and frustration. So what advice would you give to the, uh, the men in the audience in order to be able to tone down that competitive spirit and learn to be fully present and be, be curious. How do you foster that? Well, it's a challenge, but you know, I'm, my children are grown. I have uh, two daughters and a son and, uh, and I've noticed this double standard. The double standard is that if I'm home and my wife or kids get a text message, they can look at their text message. <laughs> <laughs> from anyone. But if I dare look at my phone, they all look at me with the evil eye. 
<laughs> and I'm thinking that's a double standard. But then here's what I realized is I am there to be sort of a, I am there to be seen and not heard from. I am there so that they can feel we have an intact family. We don't have a broken family. And I am there, as I said, to be seen as kind of a placeholder for we've got, you know, we're playing with a full deck. And so I think you'll chuckle at this. So sometimes when I'm with my family, I am there and I don't do as good a job as I did with you before, but I think I'm going to start exercising. What are they listening for? Well, clearly they're not listening for anything from me. And so sometimes I imagine I'm holding court with my family and I'm just there and I compare myself to the king in a chess game. And if you think about the king in a chess game, a king in a, the king can't do anything. The king is useless. The queen can go anywhere. The knights, the bishops, they can go to all different directions. But the king is basically useless. And so I'm there holding court. And that feels much better to say, I'm holding court here. And I try not to go to the place where, Mark, you're not holding court. You're being totally ignored. You're roadkill. They don't even know you're here. <laughs> and I say, Mark, be a good sport. And I'll tell you why that helps me. Because I know a lot of entrepreneurs. And I know a lot of entrepreneurs who are addicted to excitement. Oh, they love excitement. And sometimes I have excitement envy. Oh, that would be a great adventure. But most of them don't have a home. They have a home on the range. And boy, that's exciting. But I got to tell you, there's something really positive about having a home that I get to home, go home to, a place where I get to belong. Yeah, granted, I'm not listened to, but I'm listened to by people in the world. I'm listened to by Marcus. <laughs> and it's interesting because as I get to know these entrepreneurs, especially as they get a little bit older and they're excitement, excitemented out, if they don't have a home to go home to, you see, you see this smile like, oh, yeah, life is great. Oh, boy, I have another adventure. Well, you keep doing that for about 10, 15 years, and you're close to adventure, but you're not close to any other human being. You begin to see that the smile be like, maybe I missed out on something. So, you know, so I'm being much more reflective and philosophical because I'm a little bit older, but I'm try just trying to make sense of what, what's a good life. And so like you... I'm having a great time because I, I get to be out in the world. I get to have conversations with people uh, like Marcus, who seem to look up to me for some reason that I can't fathom. And I get to go home and be ignored. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, thank you so much. This has been a lovely conversation, and I genuinely appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. I think the advice that you've given is sage, it's practical and it's implementable. It's not like it's rocket science, but it, what it does require is a little bit of thinking and preparation. And you have to come at these issues when your kids are feeling this stress with, from a place of love and a place of authenticity. And to be present, just be there in the moment for them and recognize it's not about you. You can't help them by trying to solve their problem. 
you can help them by draining the abscess, by allowing them to express what they're feeling and feel like they're not alone. And I think that's an incredibly powerful message. So thank you so much. You're welcome. So here's, uh, I have to have the last word because I need to win and I'm competitive. That's so right. Here's the last word. You're, you're I'm welcome. giving you a homework. Here's the homework assignment. And you're going to report back. And by the way, if you're listening in, report back to Marcus if you tried this. You're going to do the, a FUD crud intervention with your family. You're going to sit them down and you're going to tee it up this way. You could say, um, you say to your wife, when would be a good time for all of us to sit down with each other? Because there's really something I need to discuss with all of you. And they're going to get nervous. Oh my God, what's happening to dad? Is, you know, is he having a stroke? Are you is he having cancer? What happened? And so you, know, you tee it up with a little drama and they're all there. And then you look at all of them and you could say, um, going forward, I want to be an even better dad and husband. Say even better. Because if you say better, it sounds like, you know, I really suck at this. But you say, I want to be an even better dad and husband. And I love all of you. Going forward, what is something that I could do differently so that I frustrate each of you less? What? What? Yeah, I want each of you to tell me what frustrates you most about me. And then you ask each of them, give me an example. So there they are. You're conducting this family therapy from vulnerability, you have them each give an example and you don't get defensive. You go like this. Oh, geez, I did that. Wow. Wow. What is wrong with me? So they get that out. And then you can say, you know, I'll bet there are times when you're not just frustrated. I'll bet there are times when you're upset and disappointed with me. In fact, you look at your daughters and you'll say, I'll bet there's sometimes when you go to your mom and say, what is it with dad? (laughs) You know, while we're talking like this, let's get it all out. And then they're going to tell you what they're upset about. Give me an example. Then you're going to say, what are you disappointed about? I'll tell you, Marcus, if you do this in that order, you're going to, just like you felt, felt by me, and you felt a lightning, I think you're going to feel that in your family. What's going to happen is you're going to say, wow, this is a, I don't care what they're telling me. I'm feeling close to my family. So that's your assignment. And if you're listening in, that's your assignment also. And then report back to Marcus and tell him how it worked out for you. I was letting you have the last word. <laughs> no, go for it. Mar- Marcus, you like the la- Marcus, you get the last word. <laughs> Are you sure? You're okay with that? <laughs> Excellent. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. It's been an absolute joy to have my good friend, Mark Goulston. And if you feel that this has affected you positively, then please write, like, comment, and share, and subscribe to the podcast. And if you feel that you would be a good guest or you know someone who would be an interesting guest, then please email me at mcauchi at sandler.com. And in the meantime, stay safe, be well, and do the FUD crowd exercise. Bye-bye.